you would, get your Bibles. Get them out, turn them on, open them up. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. We are continuing in our series called Sacred. And over the last few weeks, we have been laying this idea or this premise that in our world today, there seems to be some things in life that no longer appear to be sacred. Like as we live and as we move on, we just see this breakdown in our society. Like nothing is sacred. Nothing is special anymore. But what we see throughout Scripture is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God continues to work. And while it may seem as if everything is falling and burning around us, there's still a glimmer of hope. Like in all of the darkness, there still is a light that's breaking through. And it's in this light that we can find certain aspects of life that are still sacred. And it's in those spaces that as Christians, we believe there's a unique opportunity for evangelism and discipleship. And so over the last few weeks, we've looked at the sacredness of the scriptures We've looked at the sacredness of community and the sacredness of the mission of God. And today, this morning, we're going to continue. We're going to look at the sacredness of marriage. Out of the gate, what I want to do, I want to read our entire passage. Because what we're going to do is I'm going to read all of this, and we're going to take it, and we're just going to set it to the side for a few minutes. We're going to set it to the side, we're going to pray, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and begin kind of forming in our minds and in our spirits and in our hearts the word that we might hear from God. And I'm going to lay before you what's happening to marriages in our society today. All right? So Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his, own, his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. By the end of our time together, after we unpack everything we're going to unpack, we want to tackle, we will tackle, the reality that if we let society have the authority to determine what marriages look like, we have no hope. 
But if we give that authority to God, and we give that authority, and we draw it out of the Bible, the Bible has all the authority that we need. Let's pray. God, it's, uh, it's not lost on me that um, in this room and online, we have successful marriages and we have broken marriages. It's not lost on me that we have people that want to avoid marriage at all its cost because of their past, and we have people that are desperately pursuing marriage. God, this topic, this topic is hard to navigate. There's, there's baggage, there's weight. So what I pray, God, is I pray that in this moment and in this space, that you would fill this room with peace Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you open our minds? Would you reveal your word that we would take away from today? God, if there's anything that I, that I have planned to say that's going to get in the way of your gospel being heard, get it out of the way. Take me to the side. To your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in preparation for getting married, Krista and I, so what we, what we wanted was we wanted a successful marriage. Like we want it to be really good. We want our marriage to be really really great. That's all we desired. And so we did all kinds of things to prepare for marriage. We did uh, some pretty intense premarital counseling, exposed a lot of things. It was very healthy for us. Talked about a lot of things we didn't think we were going to talk about. We bought all kinds of books, most of which we read. Some that were still didn't crack, uh, we didn't crack open, but we read most of them. We hung out with our marriage, uh, our married, married families more. We pursued more answers to marriage than, than we ever had before because we wanted to have a successful marriage. Um, but in all of that, in all the books, all the conversations, all the counseling, all the things, um, there was one thing that nothing prepared me for when it, as it relates to marriage. No one told me, leading up to being married and entering into our marriage, no one told me that I would have to get rid of my Xbox. No one told me that. No one prepared me that I was no longer going to have an Xbox. The first year of our marriage was a, the hardest in the sense that we were still trying to figure each other out. Like we did this on again, off again thing for about nine months. And then I coerced her into dating me for about six months. And then we got engaged for six months. So we're all in. Day one, we're all in at knowing each other for two years. That's just knowing each other. Never lived together, so now we have that baggage to kind of bring, like, what do we do here? What I didn't know was how prone to messiness uh, Krista was. Like, she's just prone to making messes. What she didn't know on my end was that on any sharp edge corner in the house, I was going to post up like a bear in the wilderness and just start scratching my back. That's annoying, right? Like, I recognize that is a very annoying feature of myself, and uh, that's just kind of, she had to deal with that. She's had to work through it. She got counseling for me scratching my back on the corners. There were so many things that we were trying to figure out about each other, and that is the first year of marriage. And so what I didn't realize is one particular Saturday afternoon, um, I pulled out the Xbox, and I, I turned it on, and I started getting going. So what you need to know, kind of background, like, I didn't really play uh, video games that much, like maybe an hour a week total, and it was mostly on Saturday afternoons. What I didn't know was that Krista's view of video games were that they were childish. Now, if you play video games, no judgment, you keep doing you. My wife thought it was childish. So 
What happened was I get about halfway through the first quarter in Madden, and she turns and she looks at me and she says, are you going to do this all day? And so began World War III. I don't know how many weeks or how many months we were into our marriage, but this was the first legitimate fight that we had. And I mean, we were yelling. Our neighbors in the apartment were probably like, uh-oh, they were listening. They turned their TVs down because they wanted to hear every word. So you know how that is. So we, we argued. It was like late morning to maybe early evening. We went at it. By the end of it, I had my Xbox in one hand and both games in the other hand. I was ready to throw them out the window and run them over with the car. But my overdramatic self decided to calm down. I sold them and I made a little bit of money. I think we bought a DVD player. Uh, that's what we did. But no one prepared me for it. No one prepared me that I would have to get rid of my Xbox. Marriage is hard. Marriage is really hard. And the married people in the room said amen. Like, marriage requires a ton of work. Marriage requires you to fight. There's so much of our wedding day that I will forever remember. But one of them, the, the, the person that was officiating our wedding, he added a promise into our vows and he said, Chris and Krista, do you promise to fight for your marriage? We said, I do. And I want to make a sidebar. I know I prayed through it, but I want to make a sidebar. If you're single, you have the tendency to feel alienated when uh, the topic of marriage comes up, especially in a sermon. You tend to feel alienated and you believe, potentially believe the lie that marriage, that this sermon of marriage isn't for you. And in general, there are two types of single people in the room. First, single and will someday get married. And to you, I will pose the simple question. Isn't now in your singleness the best time to learn how to have a healthy marriage? We do it with our finances. We learn how to manage our finances before we go all in with investing. Isn't now the best time to learn how to have a healthy marriage? Another group, single and will never marry. The apostle Paul says that if it were up to him, he would prefer that all people would remain single so that the focus of their lives would be on giving value back and seeking and saving the lost people around you, unhindered by the responsibilities of marriage. In either category, singleness is not a scarlet letter. Singleness is a privilege and a blessing. My encouragement to you is don't waste the privilege and the blessing. Now, I understand. There's all sorts of baggage in being single. I understand that. But we have to focus our minds and focus our hearts and our spirits on the God of creation that cares for us and loves us deeply and not the things of this world. If you're here and you suffered through a divorce, God's not done with you. He has not benched you. He has not set you to the side for a later date. You are not experiencing his punishment. It's not how he operates. If God cares about created and cares about the birds of the air, how much more will he draw close to those that are hurting and walking through divorce and relational brokenness? The answer is forever and always. So with that, the problem with marriage. 
as society defines and, and, and tries to be the authority of marriage, the problem with marriage is that if it breaks down, society will break down. If we allow society to have the authority of what a marriage looks like, then we have no hope. And while this may sound like a preacher comment that's kind of fueled by emotion and opinion, we actually have hard data from people on the other team that says, nope, marriages are breaking down. Like this thing, it's not working out. And when I say other team, I mean people that's not associated to the church. Like worldly, secular, like these researching, we'll look at it. All of this is coming from the world, the other team. And so for the next little bit, what we're going to do, we're just going to jump into the data. And if you know anything about me, data is kind of weird because it's not really something that I go to. But I could not help but apply this and just set it before you so you could see it. So for the last 60 years, we have been a part of an experiment. And most of us in this room were just kind of born into the experiment. So it's like the only thing that we know the experiment started in like the mid-60s. It was called the sexual revolution. And this revolution, as it was coined, was built on the premise that the, that the traditional model of sexual relationships, i.e. marriage, as it's defined throughout Scripture, was repressive and it needed to be expanded to include many different forms and expressions. It sought to liberate women and those trapped by the traditional norms. It grew from the conviction that the explicit or the sexual activities with no limitations, it grew from the explicit should be celebrated as a normal part of life and not repressed by family, religion, or the state. The hope of this revolution, the hope of the project, was that we would experience more love that we would be more fulfilled and we would have happier relationships and marriages. And thus began the experiment. As it began, it ushered in a major problem with how society viewed marriages. So what happened at its origination is marriages started to be seen as an article of clothing. That when it faded, when it became worn out, you could just remove it and bring on another one. That's the problem. And what society both then and now refused and still refuses to accept is that on a mass level, marriage is the institution on which a society depends. And the church has been saying this. Like if you've been in the church, you've like, yeah, I've heard that before. But what's awesome and ironic, life-giving, is that the world is starting to feel it. So let's just go to the data. Prior to the mid-60s, the divorce rate in our country was around the one-quarter mark. So one in four marriages would end a divorce. As the sexual revolution started up and started to take root, you can see that the, the divorce rates start to climb. So much so that over the next 10 years into the mid-70s, divorce rates will climb more than it had in the previous 20 years combined. 1975, it reached its peak at about 50% and has stayed consistent uh, at half of all marriages ending in a divorce. Now, obviously, I, I don't want to be single-minded as we look through the data and look through the stuff that we're going to look at. I don't want to be single-minded. Obviously, as a Christian, I'm going to hold some kind of moral and ethical approach to relationships that's formed out of Scripture. That's obvious. It would... 
be foolish of me to think that there's not someone in the room or online that does not come to relationships with that same approach. And there may be some of you here that are saying, yes, but marriages may have doubled in divorce rate, but if our relationships are happier, what's the big deal? Studies now show that the more sexual partners that someone has, the less satisfaction they experience in their marriage. The sexual revolution was wrong in that we would feel more fulfilled and have happier marriages and be more satisfied. We actually feel the complete opposite. The world is feeling the weight of this. An article printed from The Critic, this is last May, makes the claim that the sexual revolution has failed Gen X women. The Washington Post writes that consent is no longer enough. Consent or permission, a consent-first culture, has left us liberated and miserable. The Atlantic goes a step further and claims that consent was never enough. Claiming that a generation of Americans have tried a new form of sexual morality and haven't just, left, haven't just found it wanting, they found it profoundly harmful. Sexual revolution has ushered in harmful relationships, miserable relationships, and has failed the people that it sought to liberate. Now, don't forget my claim a few minutes ago. That marriage is the institution on which a society depends. And most of those resources that we just looked at talks about the relationship between two people. But a society is multiple generations. So what's this doing to our kids? How has this false ideology of the sexual revolution played a larger impact? It should come as no surprise that with divorce rates doubling and complete breakdowns of our views of sex and relationships, our children are feeling the crushing weight. The United States has the highest single parent rate of any country at 23%. A quarter of our kids are raised in single parent households. And if you're a single parent and you're here today, you know how difficult it is to be a single parent. Because we've loosened our approach to the sacredness of marriage, we've started to see the breakdown in our homes. When marriage is seen as a garment, an article of clothing that can be replaced when faded or worn out, our society will begin to break down. But look at me. God's not done. Like he's not finished. And even though the, the data shows that things are breaking, God's not done. And while it may seem as if everything is falling and burning down around us, there's still a glimmer of hope. And his hope, the name is Jesus. And in the midst of all of this breakdown, in the midst of all of this darkness, there's a glimmer of hope that starts to shine through. And I've got resources, and they're not coming from our team, that say the hope is breaking through. A study out of the United Kingdom says people who go to church are more likely to have a very satisfying sex life. Researchers, amen, a researchers in the United Kingdom found that strongly religious individuals are typically more content with their bedroom activities than those who engage in casual sex. A reporter with the Wall Street Journal says that divorce is a low risk for one particular group of people, religious people who marry young without ever living together first. 
In her book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, author Louise Perry addresses the crushing weight of the sexual revolution on women by saying this, the task for practically-minded feminists then is to deter men from CAD mode. I don't know what that means. But our current sexual culture, this is the important part, our current sexual culture does not do that, but it could. In order to change the incentive structure, we need a technology that discourages short-termism in male sexual behavior, protects the economic interests of mothers, and creates a stable environment for raising children. And we do already have such a technology, even if it is old, clunky, and prone to periodic failure. It's called monogamous marriage. The hope is breaking through the darkness. The truth of Scripture will shine through the darkest of spaces. Why? Because Jesus is the victor. And there's nothing in this world that will prevent him from prevailing over the things of this world. Aren't you thankful for a God that has stepped into your darkness and said, No more. I am the light. I am breaking this up. Aren't you thankful that in the depths of your darkest moment, Jesus was there and broke through? Aren't you thankful? I know i got to get an amen. Aren't you thankful that in the depths of your addiction, light shines through and says, no more, you are an overcomer? Aren't you thankful that in the midst of a job loss, hope starts to break through? Aren't you thankful that in the midst of illness and death, when everything seems to be falling apart, God says, I'm never going to leave you, and I'm never going to forsake you. We have hope. We're promised one thing in this life. It's not going to go according to plan. Like if we know, if we've lived any number of days, we know it's not going to go according to plan. There's going to be stuff that just gets heavy and it's going to get dark. But God's not dead. God's not surprised. God's not losing. God's not lost control. God has a plan. His plan all along was Jesus. And we have, you have, I have, we have the power to overcome sin, to overcome death, to overcome the things of this world. Why? Because Jesus enters and gives us that hope. If you're here and you're tired of the brokenness, if you're here and you're tired of the darkness, today... Today might be a good day to turn and start looking towards the light. There's not a better day to turn and start saying, where's the light in all of this darkness? Because Jesus has a plan. Jesus has a plan to redeem and renew, and he's constantly at work. And so now that we've looked at the data, like now that we've set the framework for what society, what, what happens when society determines what a successful marriage is supposed to look like. I believe that God's got a good word for what true, healthy, vibrant, biblical marriage are, marriages are supposed to look like. So let's do this. Let's get in the word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm going to pause here. What's happened up to this point? So start of, verse, or start of chapter 5, what's happening is Paul is laying, laying the framework for how we can live in harmony as Christians with each other. 
And he's saying, just avoid these things. Avoid sinning against one another. Avoid these acts. And he gets to this spot and he says, we should all be submitting out of reverence for each other. Now, the reason I want to stop here before we dive into the rest of this is that that word submit, once we get into our our text, that word submit carries some baggage. And I believe that that word submit has been misapplied for many, many years in different relationships. And so what I want to start out by saying is, Paul is saying we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let's get going. 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Failures of a few. Failures of a few have led to this word submit becoming one of the most triggering words for women in the Bible. And let me be very clear before we move on. If you're a child in a man's body that has used this passage to dominate or intimidate your bride into serving you and doing as you say, you're guilty of sin and you should repent to her and you should repent to the Lord. This submission is not meant for you to be the Lord over her. Submitting is a natural thing. Like if we can remove ourselves from this text, submission is something we do on a daily basis. Like throughout the work week, we're all submitting. As an employee, you submit to your boss. If you're the boss, you're submitting to the CEO or you're submitting to your boss or the board of directors. As a volunteer, I submit to Luke's leadership on the prayer team. Luke submits to his board of directors. Submission is a normal common occurrence. Jesus himself submits to the Father's will. Submission is not a bad thing. We see it day in and day out. But when we get to this passage, wives submit to your husbands, we get triggered. Because there are men that have taken their cues from the world and wisdom from something other than the leadership of the Bible. And they sinfully made this verse mean, do as I command. What's crazy is this verse isn't even for the men. This verse is for the ladies. It's not a verse for men. Men have commandeered some men, have commandeered this passage. And I love the way the preacher and pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He says, men shouldn't quote this at your wife. You shouldn't quote this at your wife. It's hers to obey, not yours to demand. If she's not doing it, All you can do is be be the kind of leader that would be a joy to submit to. You play your role and trust God with hers. Now, the Greek word used for this submit word is literally translated to lift up. To lift up. And the image that gets painted in this this text when you think through to lift up is actually a really beautiful one. Wives are to lift, lift up their husbands just as Christ does the church. So as the church, we gather together on a Sunday or throughout the week and we lift up the name of Jesus. We raise our hands because we are exalting Christ above all. But what's beautiful about this is we are lifting up the, the Christ, the Savior, 
as he comes into this world and lifts us up out of our darkness. We're lifting up his name because he's worthy of our praise. He gave up his life as a sacrifice so that we would be lifted up. How beautiful is the picture of a wife lifting up her husband while the husband is equally lifting her up as well. Submission in the marriage context is meant to be a mutual endeavor. It is not one-sided. Wives are to lift up their husbands as the husbands are falling under the leadership of Jesus and lifting up their brides. Let's keep going. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Now the focus shifts to the husband. If the previous section is about submitting, this section is about committing. Husbands are to love their wives in a self-sacrificial manner. Again, following the example of Christ and the church. And this positioning is directly opposed to this lord over someone. This oppressive style leadership. This is lifting someone up. This is lifting your spouse. Lifting your husband up. Verse 26 is equally critical to understand as it relates to committing to sanctification, to the sanctification of your spouse. But we can't miss the, who the focus of the verse is. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Husbands and wives, you are not your spouse's savior. You will always make a crummy God for your spouse. You will always be a crummy God if you put that position on yourself. You cannot change your spouse, and for the sake of your marriage, stop trying. Change only comes by way of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're recognizing that you need to be changed, you begin in prayer. You begin asking the Holy Spirit to come and change you. If you're in a spot where your husband or your wife is like, they, they need to come around, they need to change, it's not your job. All you can do as supporter and spouse is to come alongside them and pray that the Holy Spirit would begin to work in their lives. It's not for you to change them. Paul says it's your job to set apart, to sanctify, or to lift up. And that's sanctification. Ephesians 5, we're going to finish here. Verse 30. Because we are members of his body... Oh, that, that finishes the sentence. So, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ says to the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects 
her husband. Two people becoming one is tough. I think so often when we hear this at wedding ceremonies, when we hear this in sermons, we, we bypass this last little bit to get on to the kiss or to get on to the next best thing. But, but there's something special and something unique and something tough in this. Because so often we don't know what it means to leave our father and mother until we're in the midst of something, until we're in the midst of, oh my goodness, this is happening. I have to leave behind the old and take on or pursue the new. Leaving your father and mother requires a fight. It's fighting against the old way and fighting for the new way that the married couple takes on themselves. I mentioned it earlier. Chris and I just had a baby girl at the beginning of January. She's done nothing wrong. I'm confident that she'll never do anything wrong. We also have a three-year-old at home who uh, is testing every loving button that we have, as three-year-olds do, Right? And I would never have known that, oh, we got to leave behind the old and pursue what's new until we got to the spot of disciplining our child. See, I come from a background, both of our families are incredibly loving, incredibly kind, and have set the direction for us, I think, very well. But I come from a background where my father passed away when I was a kid, and my mom had to take on both nurturer and disciplinarian. That was her role. And because I was an idiot boy, she was more on the latter side and had to discipline and direct more, um, uh, I, don't, I don't know the word that I want to use. She just had to direct more. Let's just say that, all right? She had to use a little bit more direction because I was dumb, made dumb decisions. So that naturally gives me a bent towards a certain style of discipline. My wife is quite literally an angel. And I don't know if she's ever done anything wrong. And in high school, she had to ask permission. She did ask permission to sneak out of the house. Like she just didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> and so because of that, her mom didn't have to discipline her as much as mine did to me. And so Krista comes into our relationship with a certain bent on disciplining. And it wouldn't be until our three-year-old starts throwing an all-out fit about what color Play-Doh she wants to have that we would have recognized we may not be aligned up right now. And so we had to leave behind. We've had to fight to leave behind the old. We've had to leave our father and mother. And we have to hold fast to each other. And we have to say, this is the direction that our family is going to go as it relates to discipline. But you can apply this across the board on many different things. Sometimes it's not as simple. Sometimes there's a lot of baggage attached to where you came from. Like Maybe there's some abuse there. And maybe that abuse is affecting how you see your spouse. You have to work through leaving behind the past, leaving the father and mother and pursuing or fighting for what's ahead. This is what this passage is talking about. We chose, Kristen and I chose to, we chose to submit and commit to each other. And we knew that that meant we had to leave behind the old and hold fast to each other. It requires a fight. Paul, I think, kind of lands the plane with three fairly tangible application points. He says, in order to have a healthy, happy, biblical marriage, the first thing that the couple must do is that they must submit to each other by lifting one another up. Husbands and wives, we are to submit 
to each other by lifting one another up. And maybe it's something simple, like dad's taking the kids out so mom, so your bride can get some quiet time, be in her journal, and so she can pray. I don't know how it gets, how it gets played out in your context or in your relationship or your marriage. That's for you to determine. What I do know to be true in that all in scripture, we are to be lifting up our spouse. Maybe if you don't have any idea where to start, start with prayer. God, how can I best be lifting up my spouse? How can I best be submitting to them? What does that look like? I'm confident that the Holy Spirit will reveal that to you. The second thing that we see, Paul, commit biblical healthy marriage, commit to setting apart your spouse. This is sanctification, as I mentioned earlier. Husbands and wives, this requires you to draw close to the Lord, be in constant prayer and submission to the Holy Spirit. It's praying over your bride. It's lifting up your groom as he's speaking of defeat in his life. When we attach ourselves to the things of this world, we'll get lost, we'll get confused, and we'll start crying out. And as a spouse, that's our time to step in and say, hold on a second, hold on, hold on. Who told you that you don't matter? Who, who told you that that, 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 that thing's going to happen if you make that? Who told you that? And if it's not God, most times it's not. If it's not God, then we get to point our spouse back to Jesus and say, that's not true. God has great plans for you, plans to overcome. That's how we commit to sanctifying our spouse. So Paul says, submit by lifting up, commit by setting apart. And then he says, get real gritty and fight for each other. A biblically healthy marriage consists of husbands and wives committing to fight for each other. This means when things get really, really hard, hunker down and fight. I have so many friends and I've seen so many relationships where they choose not to hunker down and fight and instead they invite friends over. They create distractions. They say, oh, we got to finish this series on Netflix. And what ends up happening is that their relationships start to break and crack and crumble. And they get to a spot where they might say, this is too much to deal with. And if you're saying that, you're past due for putting the gloves on and fighting for your marriage. It's not easy. Marriage is hard. And you have to fight for your marriage. Make it real applicable. There's an opportunity. The Significant Marriage Seminar is coming up next weekend, right? Next weekend? next weekend. If you're past due fighting, if you're on the front end and you don't even know what to expect when you get into the house, if you're engaged, if you're married, the seminar's for you. Maybe it's the first step. Maybe you don't know where else to turn. Maybe, maybe this is your first step. Use a QR code. Go back, to, go back out to the welcome desk. Get signed up. Don't, don't make an excuse. Oh, well, we're too busy or it's, it, it's too expensive. Don't make an excuse. If it's too expensive, come talk to us. If our marriages break down, if we allow society to have the authority by which a healthy marriage is, 
There is no hope. We've seen that. The world's experiencing it. They recognize it. But if we turn to the Bible, we have all the hope that we need. Maybe you need to hear this. I believe in your marriage. Like, I believe that not only is your marriage worth fighting for, I believe if you choose to fight and you choose to lift up and you choose to commit to each other, I believe there's plenty of hope for your marriage. Let's pray. Our marriage is this beautiful union. It's this beautiful covenant that you have created. You've created it so that we can work together in sanctifying each other. God, as a society, we've kind of lost it. As a society, we've kind of said, no, you come in, you can define the marriage, and you can define the covenant, and you can define the promise. And what we've seen, God, is a complete breakdown. Marriages and, and relationships are miserable. They're failing. As individuals, we don't feel valued. We don't see hope. But God, your word says something completely different. Your word says, I have all the hope that you need. We trust in your Holy Spirit and we invite your spirit to be working and moving in all of our relationships. God, I don't know where we are. You do. Would you lead us? Holy Spirit, would you break down the barriers, break down our pride, break down whatever is preventing us from pursuing healthy, biblical, life-giving marriages? We pray this confidently in your son Jesus' name. Amen.